Listening to Condé Nast Traveler's podcast, Women Who Travel, you will be transported to the ancient ruins of Pompeii, to New York City's most storied neighborhoods, and to the jaw-dropping peaks of Bhutan. It's the best of what you love about traveling, experiencing different people, cultures, and perspectives, all from the comfort of your own home. Each week, join host and global journalist Lali Alikoglu as she shares her own experiences along with those of self-identifying women travelers from all over the globe. How do the bestie comedian pairs of Sheer Zamata and Nicole Byer navigate travel together? What can you realistically expect from your first global solo travel experience? How is dance used as a tool for healing in Indigenous Australian communities? If these questions piqued your interest, pack your bags and go on a journey with women who travel. Available wherever you get your podcasts. The only thing that gets me away from the cowboy life is getting drafted. I'm 20. There's Vietnam. And when I get back, they have me run a ranch for the Army at Fort Carson. I get married, and five years later, we have our first child. The first of five. All girls. Except four of them. And I start managing a ranch in Roland, a hundred miles from anywhere. And I realize, good golly, I'm responsible for this little critter. And it fills me with anticipation and doubt and dread and with a fright. It fills my being with questions. What do I do? Can I do it? Am I supposed to have something to teach the boys? Waddy Mitchell is one of America's most beloved cowboy poets. Growing up on his father's ranch in Elko, Nevada, he watched the cowboys around him with awe, absorbing their stories, their manners, listening, observing, and learning. In today's meditative story, Wadi captures the sounds and smells of life on a ranch and shares with us the sense of honour, adventure and freedom that so captivated him as a child. In this series, we combine immersive first-person stories and breathtaking music with the science-backed benefits of mindfulness practice. From Wait What and Thrive Global, this is Meditative Story. I'm Rohan and I'll be your guide. The body relaxed. The body breathing. Your senses open, your mind open, meeting the world. It can get pretty cold on a ranch of 7,000 foot elevation. You live in sync with the seasons. 
weather is what it is, but you work with it and through it. There's no snow days, holidays, or vacation when you're stewards of living animals. Freezing, scorching, wet, and a million chunks flunk at you by hail doesn't change the job needing done. You learn early to tough through it. Almost become part of it. Being a horseback with the buckaroos is what I live for. Sometimes we go up Sherman Peak, which is almost 12,000 foot high. I see a mountain lion up there. I get a rope of big old mule deer buck up there too. The more I'm out there, the more I love it. The ranch seems huge to most folks. Lots of country, but in reality, it's just a family place with lots more acreage than we can use. Lack of water to irrigate more hay meadows and to feed cows through the winter is the only thing that keeps us from getting bigger. Our family ranch started in, I think, 1873. Over the years, it served as a stage stop, a Pony Express stop in a post office. Dad seldom has more than four men working at the ranch, and them guys all call me Waddy. Little Waddy, because, well, I always wore a hat and boots. A Waddy is a cowboy, and all I want to be is a cowboy. A buckaroo. There's a couple of bachelor brothers, John and Kincaid Reed, who are there off and on. Both huge influences in my life. Good hands. In their mid to late 20s. I had followed a number of wagons, mustanged, rode broncs, and just about everything I aspire to do. They teach me how to shoe a horse. They help me start my first colt. They teach me how to act around a crew of men, what's rude in a Brandon pen. They are what I want to be. Meals take place around a 10-foot-long table with lots of chairs. I have four sisters, but they don't eat with the men. It's just my dad, the ranch hands, and myself. Mom and the girls come in with big platters of food and put it on the table. The ranch never had a separate cookhouse, and Dad never hires a cook, so my mom does it all. She would put out a substantial breakfast, biscuits and gravy, meat, eggs, hotcakes and coffee. Our dinner would be what city folks call lunch. It's a big meal in the middle of the day. We've already put in a morning's work and still have all afternoon to go. There are roasts or steaks and potatoes, beans, vegetables, and bread or rolls. Then in the evening for supper, 
We have light meals so as not to go to bed with a full belly. We don't have electricity, so no TV, which means we do the strangest things at night. We talk to each other. After supper, we sit around the table and exchange stories. Of course, no one thinks of them as stories. It's just a good old-fashioned BS session. Somebody might tell us about an outfit they worked on and a horse there that bucked him off, or about that guy tipping a tractor over while building a road and losing an arm, about things that are significant in life, adventures. Every once in a while, someone recites a poem. My dad always has great World War II and Korea stories. He never talks about the war, just the funny things that went on around the war. Each person tells their story in their own way. Often, self-deprecating or funny or about a dangerous situation. Some were on the edge of raunchy. Seldom, though, did that talk get somber. It's almost an obligation to join in and share stories when you live like we do. I don't say much. I don't want to get sent off to bed. But I get to listen being there at the table, and that is a privilege. Can you sense the excitement in Wadi's body? His attention making his head rise and lean forward. Absorption. Breathe with Wadi as he listens to the stories. Let everything else go, just for this moment. Whatever else you're thinking of can be dealt with later. For now, just let this meditative story wash over you. Receive it without any feeling of having to respond or react. Give yourself permission to just be here. By the time I'm eight, I'm on a full schedule of chores. I feed the leppy pin calves out of a bucket. I get the milk cow in and milk her. I milk some for the barn cats and a little for the dogs. Then take the house milk in and strain it through a filter into a gallon mayonnaise jar. We let the cream rise overnight and scoop it off in the morning and put it in the milk in the crick to stay cool. We make our butter and ice cream with it. Only time we'd actually get ice cream though was in the winter time because that's the only time we had any ice for the churn. When I turn 12, I get to sleep in the bunkhouse with the men as long as I'm quiet and don't get in the way. I take that serious, because 
It's a big deal for me to stay out there where I can listen. The bunkhouse smells like cigarettes and pipes and cigars and wood smoke. Talk is kept low, spare, no loud voices. It has to do with common courtesy, a rule without ever being written down or spoke of. Each guy has a bunk, his bedroll, his war sack, and a couple of hooks above the bed to hang his clothes. The only real job in there was to clean the sink out when you got done washing in it, sweep around your bunk now and then. And to me, this is all important stuff. The little details that go along with the big things. At night, I lay on my bunk quiet, and I relish every minute that I get to listen to the buckaroos talk. One night, a guy named Curly Bill Johnson starts in to recite in a poem out of nowhere. It's about a cowboy who has a horse he called Badger. They'd been together a long time, had lots of adventures, and like happens, They got awful close. But the horse was getting old and not up to the rigors of the wagon works, so he decided to turn Badger out on a good pasture for the season. Now, there's what you call a candy boy on a big outfit. His job is to bring out supplies and the mail to the wagon and other outlying camps and then take our letters back. Well, the cowboy had been out on that wagon about two months and hasn't been in to see Badger. The candy boy comes out, unloads supplies, and just before he leaves, looks over and says, Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you your horse wire cut and died. And then he just drives off. And that candy boy turns back from that pickup window and tells him about his horse, just the cold indifference of him saying that with no compassion. My 12-year-old heart just breaks. A cowboy can love a horse. All of us in the bunkhouse know that. I've got big old tears a-willing up my eyes. I peek around because I don't want the buckaroos to see me crying, but nobody looks at anybody. There's a few guys that are probably holding back tears themselves. I recognize then that poetry is part of being a cowboy, being able to do that. And from that day on, I start reading poetry in earnest. As Wadi describes, listening with your full being can be a powerful tool for connecting with yourself and the world. Drop any reactive thinking. Let your attention be soft and open your awareness to the music of the world in this moment, in this place. If your sense of being expands, notice that.
The closest settlement to us is Jiggs. It's a ranching community 30-some miles from us. It's where I go to school. Jiggs has a bar, a community hall, the Mound Valley Volunteer Fire Department truck, and a schoolhouse. It's the mecca for the ranching area. The school is one room with one school marm and typically has about 11 kids first through eighth grade. Of course, they can't run a bus out that far for so few, so by the time I'm nine, I drive my sisters to school in an old 1957 Willie's Jeep station wagon. I lose sight of the road a little bit every time I use the clutch, And remember the old compression windshield wipers that almost come to a stop going up a hill and then pretty near beat themselves to death going down? Kids driving to a country school is not uncommon, and nobody thinks twice about it. After the eighth grade, I board in town for high school, and that means I'm away from everything I know and love. There's 240-some kids in that high school, and I don't savvy their ways. And they sure as heck don't make me feel welcome. I'm the last one picked in P.E., and I guess I don't blame them. Ranch kids don't learn how to play organized sports. But all the same, city kids... Don't know how to ride a bronc or rope a calf or run equipment or pull a calf or start a young horse or, well, lots of other things. By 16, I figure I'm way too smart to go to high school anymore, and I get a job to go out with the 7S chuck wagon. They're a big outfit, and for a young buckaroo like me, it is heaven. I learn a lot that season. Buckaroo life gets me hooked. Most of the buckaroos are let go for the winter, but I'm lucky and they keep me on to start the colts this winter. That is a scary thing for a horse. Think about it. Through all the millennia they have evolved, they were prey. And so their natural instinct is always to flee from a threat. What you try to do is make them feel safe and better off around you than they would be somewhere else. Starting colts involves figuring out where that horse's mind is so you can understand what that horse needs to make his world calmer. You want to make it the horse's idea. That comes from some technique, but mostly it comes from listening. Listening to the whole thing through the horse's body. Listening through the horse's mind. And then listening through your fright and your sense of feeling unworthy. These are big horses, five, six-year-olds. A lot of the big outfits would wait that long to start their horses, figuring they need to get what they call good and leggy so they can handle in 60-mile-a-day circles, mostly at a trot. 
that's important. I do my best to make friends of them, and I do all the things I can to help them from killing me or killing themselves. And that, it keeps me busy. And it keeps me interested and happy. The only thing that gets me away from the cowboy life is getting drafted. I'm 20, and there's Vietnam. And when I get back, they have me run a ranch for the Army at Fort Carson. I get married, and five years later, we have our first child, the first of five. All girls, except four of them. And I start managing a ranch in Roland, a hundred miles from anywhere. And I realize, good golly, I'm responsible for this little critter. And it fills me with anticipation and doubt and dread and with a fright. It fills my being with questions. What do I do? Can I do it? Am I supposed to have something to teach the boys? I figure out that I do, and I will. And I want to start writing. That helps me to think things through. But what will I write about? My wife says to write about what you know. Being a cowboy. The stories that I didn't even consider stories that were fed to me by my dad and the cowboys that worked at the ranch. There was an ignorance of the past and a disregard for the future that made it all feel so vivid and vital. For that very reason, it was natural. It was only itself. It was what we were doing. Had I known what I know now, I might have taken it all down. I might have put all these cowboys' ideas and stories down, but at the time, living that lifestyle, I just didn't think it was ever going to end. I've been a professional poet for over 30 years now. And if there ever was a recipe that a feller could use to write good poetry, I never found it. It's the same with cowboying and like those suppers at my dad's ranch house and breaking colds. I get to just listen. Listen for the things we have in common. Listen for the tune of the story. And that's what makes a poem hit me, the music and heart in that language. I guess it comes down to being pretty simple in the end. If it moves you, if you can smell it, if you can feel it, it works. That is what poetry is supposed to do. And that's what I've been trying my best to write. 
for a long time now. Thank you, Wadi. In just a moment, I'll guide you through a closing meditation. The image that stays with me most from Wadi's story is that of starting colts. The newly minted cowboy training the young horses, taming them to be ridden, to work. Meditation is training the mind. And while traditionally teachers might talk about the mind being like a monkey or puppy, I like cult. The wildness, the energy, the sheer lack of interest to have anything to do with being trained. In the first instance, at least. So with body relaxed, hands soft, let's see what this cult, this wild thing, is like. Watch your mind. Watch your cult. Keeping it on the rope of your attention. Watch it move and buck and shuffle. Watch your mind do what it does. It might be energetic, full of thought chains set off by Wadi's story, or distracted caught up in what's happening next in your day. However it is, watch your mind at the end of the line of your awareness, your own body steady and stable, hands soft but firm. Let your mind, your cult, be how it is. Just be here, a steady presence. Going with it if there's energy, but showing them you're here, whatever. Staying present, even if the mind bucks. Wadi talked about making friends with the cults. So while watching your mind and its energy, be friends with it, even if it's all over the place. Friends can be like that sometimes. Minds too. Watching the mind, being present with it, being friends with it, may mean that the cult has started to settle down. If so, go with that. Be present to that. And with your hands still on the rope, walk in closer. Be with your mind, however it is. Let it be how it is. And each time it settles down a little bit more, step closer. Over time, the mind does calm, though it never really does become tame. But I'm sure Wadi would agree with me. We need that little bit of wildness. 
thank you and go well. On behalf of the team at Meditative Story, thank you for spending time with us today. We love creating the show for you. And if the show serves you in a meaningful way, we'd love to hear from you. Would you take a minute right now to write us a review in your podcast app? When you leave a review, it really inspires our team. And we're a group who derives so much energy from understanding how Meditative Story impacts you. It's also a way for you to pay it forward by helping others discover the show. So if leaving a review speaks to you today, we'd really appreciate it. Meditative Story is a Wait What original in partnership with Thrive Global. The show is produced at the studio inside SY Partners in New York. Our executive producers are Darren Triff, June Cohen, Ariana Huffington and Dan Katz. Our producer is Timothy Lou Lee. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our curator is Carrie Goldstein. Original music and sound design is by the Holiday Brothers. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Anne Sachs, Juliana Stone, Summer Matthijs, Monica Lee, Lindsay Benoit O'Connell, Libby Duke, Smithy Sinha, Stephanie Gonzalez, and Sarah Sandman. A special thank you to our friend Kristin Winbigler of the Western Folklife Centre, who connected us with Wadi and made this meditative story possible. And I'm Rohan Gunatilaka, creator of the Buddhify Meditation app and your host. Visit meditativestory.com to find the transcript for this episode. <laughs>